Hey, what's up, everybody? How you guys doing today? Yeah, good to see you. And also, welcome to everybody who is joining us online from local or around the globe. We're so glad that you are with us. Aren't we glad that they're with us as well? Yeah, yeah. So, hey, real quick, uh, I want to just say it's great to be back. My family and I got away. We went to the Blue Ridge Mountains last week for a little vacation. It was awesome. Uh, such a great getaway. A six-month-old baby, 12-hour drive. It was awesome. Like, God blessed us. It, he did so good. I've heard horror stories, but Blake was a champion. Um, so missed you guys, but it's so great to be back. I want to give a couple shameless plugs real quick since I wasn't here last week. Uh, first of all, the men's conference, fellas, this is going to be awesome. I would love for you to make it a priority to join us for the men's conference. And for those of you, uh, and maybe if you're local even, going like, who's this Walter Hooker guy? Uh, he was the executive pastor that I served under for 16 years. That is the man that I still to this day call my pastor, who pastors me, has shaped me, invested into me, poured into me. Um, it blesses me, still challenges me. And so um, our team thought it would be really exciting for my church to get to hear from my pastor. Uh, so he's going to be here and it's going to be amazing. He's going to be preaching that weekend as well. So you'll get to hear from him. And then the golf tournament is separate from the men's thing. And so ladies, you are invited to play as well. It's not a men's only golf tournament. It's an add-on. And so if you want to put a team together, the spots are filling up quick. We would love uh, for you to get second place to my team. So um, <laughs> challenge offered. Uh, so anyway, so no, but it's great to be back and really, really enjoying this series that we're in called Heroes. And what we're looking at is uh, quote unquote heroes of the Bible, but we're looking at their story and we're asking some questions about what do we glean from this? What, what can we learn? How can we emulate some of the things in their lives? And uh, kind of the inspiration comes out of Hebrews chapter 11. And so uh, we're right smack in the middle of this. I said, it's five weeks, this is week three. And I'm really, uh, I'm really excited to tell a story that's maybe a little bit less familiar familiar to some of us. Uh, maybe all these stories are less familiar. And so the goal of this is that you learn a little bit more about the Bible. Uh, we're going to talk about what was going on there and then that makes it so special. We're going to look at the story and then we're going to ask a couple of questions about what does this mean for me here now today? How can I apply this to my life? Uh, and so um, with that said, let's say a quick prayer and then let's dive into it. Heavenly Father, um, I say this every week and I mean it. No one needs to hear from me. They just need to hear from heaven. So God, I pray that you'd open our hearts, that your spirit would anoint me, God, that you would speak through me and that you would speak to our hearts. Uh, for those who need hope, I pray that you would speak hope. For those who need uh, to hear a word drawing them closer to you, that they would hear that. And uh, we just give you permission to say to us what we need to hear today. And everybody who agrees with that says... In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, before we do, go and throw into social media. We asked this question this week, uh, which we got a lot of answers in a similar region, and it was just a fun one. It was this, if you could choose a different era to grow up in, what would you choose and why? We got some good answers. Um, although I will say I was a little surprised we didn't get a little bit more of like, I don't know, the medieval times or the pirate days. And so um, a lot of the answers were kind of in these three categories. And so here's the three that showed up the most. Um, the 80s was a big one uh, because my family would tell me all of their childhood stories of them running around with their friends until the streetlights came on, uh, plus the square body trucks. Uh, that and so many other reasons for the 80s. Uh, it, was, it was a great time. So um, this must be somebody younger because I grew up in the 80s. So um, definitely the 50s grease lightning style with the pink ladies and the sandlot days. Come on, somebody. Um, everything was slow paced. You had no cell phones or social media. Um, by the way, we didn't have that in the 80s either. Um, and kids could play outside without worrying about them. I think that still depended on what part of the country you lived in. Uh, and then them good old days. Uh, so the 50s. And then here was one that we got. Uh, little House on the Prairie days, hands down. Um, so we're not sure when that is, but uh, somewhere between the 1800s. But you know what showed up a lot was the 1920s. Like, I was surprised. I'm feeling like, the 20s, the 20s. And I'm like, have you ever read a history book? Do you know about the Great Depression? Uh, 
But uh, anyway, so that was just a fun little question. But, but here's why we asked that, and, and it's kind of connected to our story today because we learned this early on, and there's a kind of a truth surrounding this idea that really there's a lot of things we're not in charge of. There's a lot of things we don't get to choose. Like we don't get to choose when we're born. We don't get to choose what nationality we are. We don't get to choose what family we're born into. Uh, we don't get to choose even what gender we are. Uh, there may be a, 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 a movement that says you do, but you don't. Uh, somebody chose that for you at your birth. Um, and so a lot of things are chosen for us before we ever have a say. The family, the, the, the family of origin, the nationality, the time and, and the place. And so the, it begs the question is, is, is God in charge? Is he sovereign or is this all random? Is there a plan? Um, and so we don't get to choose that, but what we do get to choose is what do we do with the opportunities we've been given? What do we do with the challenges we face? What do we do with the failures? What do we do with the successes? What do we do with this life that we have been given? And, 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 and then also we get to choose, is God a part of our story or not? Are we going to live for ourselves? Or are we going to believe there's something bigger of a bigger purpose going on that we're invited to be a part of? And so our hero today, I'm sure would have chosen a lot of different things. I'm sure this hero would have probably chosen to live in a very different time. I'm sure this hero would have definitely chose probably to be a part of a different nationality based on the fact that they were in slavery for hundreds of years or so. And I think if you know anything about the history of, of the ancient times, our hero today probably definitely would have chose to be a different gender because in those days, women really didn't have much to say about anything and didn't matter. And so our hero this week is Esther. Uh, and there's a book of the Bible called Esther. And, uh, and there's some that's known about her, but her story is unbelievably fascinating. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, to, let me tell you a little bit about the story. And what I'm excited about is the Bible project, the videos, it's so good. I'm gonna use it throughout this message to help tell the story. Because if you don't know this story, you're gonna walk away knowing the story. But here's a few things that you need to know that are kind of fascinating about the book of Esther, which is kind of somewhere in the middle of the, the Old Testament. Um, Esther is only one of two books of the Bible that is named after a woman. Um, that, Esther and Ruth, um, uh, it's also one of two books of the Bible. I'm going to talk more about this in a minute. That actually God is not mentioned at all throughout the entire book. It's 12 or 14 chapters and God doesn't, the name God doesn't show up one time. That only happens in two books. Song of Solomon is the other one. And that's far more romantic, uh, in a very ancient type of a way. Uh, and it's also one of the few books when you read the old Testament, most of the Old Testament was written from God's people to God's people at a time of flourishing or a time of establishing or a time of reigning. There are very few books actually written in a time of like slavery and exile. We're not, we're under somebody else's rule. We're not really living the way God wants us to live. We're not experiencing his blessings. And they called that exile. And so this was written in exile, similar to Daniel and Ezekiel. And so Here's what you need to know about kind of how things worked in those times to make this story make more sense. In those days, it was kind of a, a, a game of global dominance, a real life version of risk, basically. And what you would do is you would take over another region because you had a bigger army or more rich army or whatever the case was. When you conquered that land, most of the time you would destroy most of the inhabitants, but what became common practice was you would um, maybe uh, leave a few of them. Some of the younger ones, maybe those who were, uh, had higher aptitude, definitely the young males that showed promise, even maybe some of the very beautiful females. And then what you would do is you would kind of brainwash them. You would teach them your language. You would teach them your religion. You would teach them all your stuff. And if you liked how they did, you would kind of employ them into your services. And if not, you would just discard them. You'd behead them. You'd get rid of them because after all, they weren't really your people anyway. And so this is the setting of Esther. Esther is a Jew. She's of the people of God, but they have been in about a hundred 
hundred years of exile, they first were captive to the Babylonians, but then the Babylonians took over the Persians. And so now they're serving the Persians. And this is kind of the setting. And so, as I mentioned this week, I'm going to use the Bible project to help me tell the story. And so here's the backdrop that you need to know. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. And the main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. So those are our four main characters. That, that king of Persia, his actual name is Xerxes, the same Xerxes you read about in history. Uh, he was one of those. In fact, he reigned a huge providence. He had 127 providences that extended all the way from India to Egypt. And for those of you who don't have like the world map memorized in your head, that's a really long ways. That's a lot. Uh, and so, um, so our four main characters are Mordecai and Esther. Now Esther um, lost both of her parents. She's kind of an orphan nobody girl. And so her uncle Mordecai adopts her and raises her as her own, but they're under the Persian rule. Then you have Xerxes, and then you have this other guy named Haman. And so as I mentioned, there's two kind of things we want to look at through this story. Number one, it's really fascinating. In fact, it's a clever intentional technique that God is never mentioned in this book of the Bible that God wrote. Uh, and the reason is, is because the invitation isn't necessarily to say, what does it say about God? But this is so applicable to our lives because the invitation is to look and see God's hand and his activity throughout the story. There are so many coincidences. There are so many ironic twists. There are so many things that happen crazy at the last minute, just the right time, that it invites and begs the reader to ask a few questions. And here's a couple questions that we look at through the book of Esther. Number one is uh, when God seems absent, is he? Because there's going to be a portion of this story where it's like, where's God and what's he doing? Uh, second question, when uh, has God actually abandoned his promises and his people? Because he had said things were going to go better for them. Is, that's a question that this book invites us to ask. Another question is, is God really in control? Like, what's going on? Is it just randomness? Is it just coincidences? Uh, all these things. And so, um, and not to mention that if you're a kind of a hist history fan of the Jewish culture, one of the main festivals comes out of this story by a random rolling of the dice. It is crazy. And so that's kind of the backdrop of we're going to be looking for God's activity. And then and as we tell the story, we're going to be looking at our own lives and look at the same kind of lens and go, when I thought God was absent or when it seems like all these random things are happening, were they just random? Or has perhaps God been at work way more than I realized? And maybe he's writing a better story than I could ever write on my own. Come on, somebody. So we are introduced to our hero and her story begins in like a really weird, bizarre way. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days. And it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. 
and the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now, after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. So at the beginning of the story, there's all kinds of random things that just are kind of listed as randomness that you have to follow the whole story to kind of see how they play out. And I wonder how many times in our life that's God's story in our life. So many things that seem random or weird or out of left field, but God's like, just wait, watch what I'm going to do if you will continue to stick with me, trust me, and allow me to be a part of your life and write your story. I don't know if you caught the beginning of this, but 187-day party. That is crazy. In fact, if you read it, it says he threw a 180-day party, and then that wasn't enough, so they spent another seven days celebrating the 180-day party basically they just had. He's like, hey, I'm awesome. Let's party. That's like, go oh, a half a year. Um, and then he's like, he gets tired of one of his queens, and so he's like, I, basically, they have a Miss Persia contest for the next queen. And it's like, hey, give me the beauty as the bride, and you know, I don't know if they played the, the flute or whatever they did, however it worked, but God somehow gave favor to this Jewish girl, Esther, who hides her identity. And by the way, when I say beauty contest, ladies, if you have ever had like an amazing weekend at the spa, you have nothing on Esther. I wanna just show you what went into like this king being like, I wanna pick the best. In Esther chapter two, verse 12, it says this, it says, before a young woman's turn came to go before King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months of oil and myrrh and six months with perfume and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. It says in the next verse, I don't know if we put it up there. Uh, anything she wanted was given to take with her from the harem of the king's palace. Talk about a spa treatment. Like she got for a year, it's like, we're gonna do everything we can, babe, to make you look awesome, all right, babe? Looking good, babe. Like, you know what I mean? And it's like, if there's any other accessorizing you need, just mention it. And this is how it goes. And so you got all, and again, you have this huge region, and out of all of them, this random Queen Esther of this oppressed Jewish community comes all the way through. And again, God's not mentioned anywhere, but we start to see his activity. So we mentioned there were four main characters. I don't want to keep the story moving along. So now you know Xerxes, he is kind of a power-hungry, drunken, just throws party, get what he wants. That's the king. And then you got Mordecai, and then you got Esther. But then there's also this other, he's kind of the villain, the, the, the antagonist. He and Mordecai would be like these rivals, and his name was Haman. Haman was basically the captain of the armies. He was kind of number two in charge. And again, as I mentioned, he hates Mordecai. They're kind of rivals. And so we see the main plot really here unfold. And this is where the story really starts to take place. In chapter three of Esther, uh, just one scripture here, verse six, it says this, um, yet having learned, so Mordecai somehow discovers uh, Esther's secret identity and finds out that she's related to Mordecai. And since they're rivals, that's not going to go well for a man in power, as you could imagine. So it says, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he, Haman, scorned the idea of killing over only Mordecai. He's like, I, I got to get rid of Mordecai, but that's not enough. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes. This is the main verse. This is the main plot setting of this story is Haman is hell-bent, literally, is set out to destroy all the Jews, which would include Mordecai and include who? Queen Esther. 
So now we have the plot thickening. This is what he's all about. And now he's gonna unroll his plan. And that's how this story unravels. And if you have about 20 minutes this week, you should just read the whole book for yourself because it's really, really, really compelling. So this is what happens. And so basically Haman wants to wipe the Jews out. He's out to get all of them. And so a little bit of backstory of how, of now you get to know a little bit more about why. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember for Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. And so this is where the story really picks up, and this is really interesting. There are all kinds of crazy Persian laws about this time. Uh, but what happens here is they become aware of the plan to wipe them all out. There's this decree made. The king doesn't know it, but they know it. And they randomly roll some dice about what day this will happen. Well, it turns out they have a little bit of time. And this is where Mordecai says, this is your chance, Esther. I believe it's not random that you were chosen. I believe it's not random that you were born where you were born. It's not random that we are here. He says this, this line, he says, I believe God can deliver his people another way. I believe God could deliver his people another time. But I love this, this statement right here in verse 14, where he says, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. But who knows? Perhaps you find yourself in the situation you're in for this exact moment because there's something bigger going on than what seems at the surface. And maybe, just maybe, this isn't just about you eating grapes and going to big parties. And maybe, just maybe, this isn't about you having the Miss Persia sash that you get to wear around, uh, the queen sash. Maybe, just maybe, this isn't about you getting to live a little bit more of a life of luxury than most of the slaves. Maybe God has put you in this context, in your job, in your family, in this place, in this time in history, because there's something bigger going on in you and there's something bigger he wants you to be a part of. And that is not just Esther's story. That is what I would say to you today. Maybe, just maybe, you find yourself in the job you're in, the home you're in, the family you're in, the kids you have that a little bit seem crazy once in a while for such a time as this that there's more going on and there's a whole lot more purpose and what may seem like a mundane job or a mundane life or a single mom or I wish it was different than this. Maybe, who knows? Maybe the grand architect of the universe intentionally put you here and he's got something way bigger for you if you'll invite him into the story. Maybe, who knows? 
And here's the best part. I've been following God most of my life. Pretty poorly, a lot of it, but I've been following him nonetheless. Here's the best part about following God. It's always twofold. He has something so good for you. He wants to do so much in you and in your life and bring you the peace and joy and do something so much grander than this world wants to. If you have the opportunity to invite God into your life, he will blow you away with what he will do. Like the true living God, Jesus to come the Lord of your life. But when that happens, it's not only just for you, he then actually wants you to be a part of somebody else's God story too. Their story of deliverance, of forgiveness, of healing, of redemption, of hope. It's the best thing that God does all this. And he have, we have this relationship with God. And he's like, and oh, by the way, you don't just work at Menards because. You don't just work at Publix because. You don't just have an insurance agency because you aren't just a teacher and a coach because perhaps you coach those individuals for such a time as this. Perhaps there's some teenagers coming through your team. Your team. Perhaps there's some, there's some kids in your school. Perhaps there's some coworkers that need some salt and need some light every day, need to know that this world isn't all there is. It's going to get better at the end because God is going to redeem his good world even at the end of times. Because hope and faith in Jesus is this world isn't all there is. Perhaps you were given the opportunity as small or as large as it may seem for such a time as this. And when you grasp onto that question, it can give every day and every moment purpose. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe I'm shopping for such a moment as this. Who knows? Maybe I got blessed because there's somebody else in my life that I need to pass this on to for such a time as this. Who knows? Maybe, just maybe, even the pain of my past and the story of where God has brought me through will give somebody else some encouragement and hope that God is never gonna leave you and that you're not alone and better days are coming, whether it's on this side of eternity or not. And so some of you, I wanna encourage that. Who knows? Maybe you've come into your position for such a time as this. It's not just about the raise or the promotion or the more comfortable life or the harder life or who knows, maybe God has a plan. Am I saying God causes bad things? No, that's the, the fall of sin. It goes all the way back. What I'm saying is God can use everything. If we look for his activity, which is what this story in this book is all about. We ask that social media question. If you could be born in a different time, what would you be born? A lot of us pick a lot of different things as fun, but, but, but who knows? Maybe you're supposed to be right here, right now, wherever you're watching locally, globally, listening here in this room, that maybe there's way more to it than just the job you do or the kids you raise or the friends you take or the small group you're a part of. Maybe there's something even more going on. And so the question I would ask is, how has God put you in a position to help you show others who God is right now? How has, where, where, what context has he placed you in right now? You might watch this a year from now and your context might be different right now. Maybe it's, it's the, the leisure activities you have. It's the shopping you do. It's the gym you go to. It's, it's the company you keep. It's the cribbage night on Friday night. I don't know if they still do that or I don't know. My grandma used to do that. Right now, to be hope. And here's what I love about the Esther stories is, is Mordecai challenges her and the faith of Mordecai says, I think God's gonna save us either way. And then, and then uh, Esther responds in kind with bravery. And I love this. She says, I believe that you are, I believe I was put in this position for something bigger than just myself. And she says, if I perish, I perish. Which I cannot say that without thinking of Rocky for. If he dies, he dies. I just can't do it. <laughs> But anyway, I digress. Um, I, I, I even told myself, don't say that in the message. I can't do it. It's just right here. Um, but, she, but, here's, but here's the beautiful thing, what she's saying. She's saying, I'm willing to put my life, I'm willing to put my royalty, I'm willing to put my position, I'm willing to put my fame, I'm willing to put my, my inheritance, I'm willing to put uh, all of that stuff on the line so that I can maybe help some other people, so that I can maybe save a nation or a generation. And it's just one person. And by the way, she wasn't the only queen. It does say she was the favorite queen, but she was... Uh, uh, not the only queen. And so what does she do? So she, uh, she discovers there's this decree 
that that can't be done. And so now she has this plan. She's like, I gotta tell the king, but super weird rule. You can't just go talk to the king. He has to invite you. So for you to invite yourself was literally, you're taking your life in your own hands. And so she's like, I'm gonna go for it. I, king, I think likes to party. I'll just say, hey, king, I got a party for you. That seems to work. And so she does, and she invites him, and she invites Haman. And, and uh, so they have this party, and, 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 and then it's really weird, because like, then I wanna have another party. Well, in between these parties, what happens is Haman leaves the first party, and he walks out, and he sees Mordecai. And he's just, every time he sees Mordecai, he's like, oh, I wanna kill this guy. In fact, he gets so raging angry that him and his friends are like, you should build a pole 75 feet high and impale him on it. Number two in command. So he does. He goes and puts it. I don't know if it was actually that tall what he built, but that's what they recommended. He built this tall pole. And the plan was he was going to kill uh, Mordecai on this pole. He's like, I'm going to get Mordecai. Uh, and so again, now let's just push pause in the story right now. If you parachute yourself into the story, this is the moment where it seems like things can't get worse. We thought we were on the up and up. Esther became queen, but now there's this decree. It looks like we're all dead. Our boy Mordecai, who has the most power, he's about to get it, like posted up literally for the whole country to see. Like, this is not good. God, where are you? And this is where we can connect to, to the story. The marriage isn't going the way I thought. The business isn't going the way I thought. There's less hope. There's less peace. The kids didn't turn out the way we hoped, at least at this point in their teenage years, whatever the case may be. And we can all relate to this part of the story where it's like, I didn't think it was going to go this way. And here's the beautiful part of the story. It ain't over. And sometimes the, 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 the devil's main, like the thing he's trying to do in your life is get you at your lowest point, And that's when he'll get you to quit, give up or doing something that will just totally destroy your life and your future in loss of hope. And this is the story is to give us hope because this is the turning point of the story. It, it may seem like it can't get any worse, but this is a turning point. And so this is right where the story pivots. And basically, this is so crazy. What happens next is this is all about to happen. And the night before the second banquet, the craziest thing happens. Just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Right? Like, that's crazy. He's like, hey, king, I want to kill somebody. Before you do, I have, so and the, here's how it actually goes. The king asks him, what should we do somebody who, for somebody who deserves honor? And of course, Haman thought he was talking about himself. And so he's like, he told him, this is what should happen. And he goes, okay, set it up and you do it. I want you to do that for, Ham, uh, for Mordecai. What? So now he's got to lead his enemies, like, praise be to this guy. Praise be to this guy. That's exactly what happens. And so Basically, as the story goes on, he's got to do this, which just fumes him. He's like, I got a poll for you. But this is literally, what are the chances? Months, years before Mordecai saves the king's life and he was too drunk to remember it. One night he's like, I can't sleep. He's like, somebody read me something boring from history. So the guy's reading the article. He's like, uh, one night uh, Mordecai saved your life. He's like, hey, did we ever do anything for him? <laughs> this is probably a couple years later, by the way. If you follow the chronology of the story which I can't tell you how many times in my life that I, that I was faithfully serving the Lord and things went opposite the way I thought and I felt like I was overlooked and didn't get what I was des deserved or even that I was like, man, God, if you're good, it shouldn't have went this way. And years, a couple times, even decades later, the thing that I, I thought I wanted, then God was like, hey, remember 
how faithful you were when no one was looking when you were 28, when you were 35, the way you took care of the kids and sacrificed and never complained and whatever. Now that you're this or now that you're there, I wanna bless you because I saw and I honored your faithfulness from two generations ago. And I believe that's how God is. See, the, his faith, faithfulness is the currency of heaven and he never forgets faithfulness. It says that when we bring our sins to him and ask for forgiveness, he wipes those away, but he doesn't wipe away our faithfulness. And sometimes somebody, I believe there's maybe somebody watching or listening that you're a little bit bitter because you're like, man, I've been serving God and what has it gotten me? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Because perhaps he's setting you up for something so much better than you could ever imagine. And if you got what you wanted now, it wouldn't even be close to what he has for you later. And that's easy to amen in church and hard to live. But I believe some of us need to hear that. And so that's where this story goes. And so this is the ultimate reversal as we kind of wind the story down. So here's what happens. He leads him around and then the day ends and then they have the second banquet. And the second banquet is where Esther reveals the whole thing to King Xerxes. She just exposes him. Uh, and so basically uh, she says, hey, by the way, um, uh, you don't know this, but Mordecai issued a decree that all the Jews get killed. And oh, by the way, I'm Jewish. And it would have looked something like this. Wait, what? In fact, Esther chapter seven, verse three, this is how it reads in the text. It says, then Queen Esther answered. He said, if, if I have found favor with you, my king, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is all I'm asking. She doesn't ask for riches or glory. She just wants to spare her people. He says, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Watch how humble she is. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because that would never be worth disturbing the king over. She says, we could handle male and female slaves. That wouldn't be worth your time. That's how humble she was. But she says, we have been annihilated. And, 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 he, and he, the king is like, are you kidding me? Who did this? She's like, oh, by the way, it's the other guy at the banquet, Haman. King probably had just enough to drink to be a little extra angry. And so at this point, he says, well, we need to do something about this guy. And the story basically goes, well, there happens to be this impalement pole that's open uh, near here, true story. And so the king says, well, why don't you take Haman and impale him on that pole? And as the story goes, Haman ends up on his own pole because even, that's really gross. <laughs> because even when it looks like things couldn't be worse and the end is near, God's hand moved in. Because what we do see is that throughout the story, Esther and Mordecai never stopped following the Torah. They, 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 they fudged a little bit but they continued to be faithful to their principles and to their, their Jewishness. And there were certain things they did. And even in a broken foreign world that was so different than them, they never lost who they were. And so now as the story kind of finishes, the problem of Haman is taken care of, but there was a weird rule that you couldn't undo a decree. And so now you have the, the problem of the decree by the Persian law that you couldn't cancel. So what are they gonna do about that? We'll close the story with this video. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. 
Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai establish by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. So in the end, Esther saves her people. <laughs> Esther remains the favorite queen. Esther shows the world that there is a God that moves on her behalf. And her uncle Mordecai, who was the evil rival of the second most powerful man in the nation, is now elevated to that man's position. And that man is out of the picture. Because see, God is never going to take somebody out like intentionally. He loves all people. But God is in the business of removing obstacles of you doing what he created you to do. See, sometimes I think we're like, well, God keeps me back. Well, sometimes he's keeping us back from what we want to do. But he's never going to keep you back for the long haul from what he has for you to do. And I, I kind of forgot an important detail at the very beginning, the, the why are we here? The only reason they ended up in corruption is because they had been like continuously disobedient to living God's way for, oh, a few hundred years. And God sent prophet after prophet to warn them. He's like, hey, if you don't, you're going to end up in exile. And so the whole point of this whole story, kind of the synopsis is, is this, I put it on the screen, that despite being in exile, despite God's absence, and despite Israel's continued disobedience and moral corruption, God has not abandoned his promises nor abandoned his people. And I just gotta believe there's some people this weekend that need to hear. In spite of your exile, in spite of your continued disobedience, in spite of your moral corruption, and in spite of the fact that it might seem that God is more distant and absent, if you will open your heart and your life to him and choose to say, God, I wanna see you move, he would show you that he has never abandoned his people and he never abandons his promises. And so there's a takeaway. So the here, that's the there and then, that's the story. So we have the last five minutes, we get to ask the question, so what does this mean for us here and now? I wanna give you three takeaways. What is what, 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 good, what good does this story do us? See, this story invites us to see that God can and does work through the real mess of our lives, and he's always active. And so the first takeaway is this. What can we learn from Esther? Number one, that those who are willing to embrace the kingdom and are willing to be different can be used by God. We're gonna talk more about this in a couple weeks. But God wants to use you, but, but the people he's gonna use aren't the ones who are doing everything the way the world is, that we're fighting the way the world does and we're living the way the world does and we're arguing the way the world does and we, we do every, it, it's, it's according to his kingdom. Somebody, somebody that trusts that God's way is better and even if it, I take a little bit of heat, I take a little bit of flack, I take a little bit of criticism for living different or doing some different things or, or maybe uh, uh, different, that, that I'm actually positioning myself to experience first all that God has for me and also be used for God in a foreign nation. The Bible is full of stories of God, God establishing his kingdom. It is also full of stories who thrived in a foreign land. The Daniels, the Shadrachs, the Meshach, Abednego's, the Moses, the, jo, the, the jo, uh, Josephs, the, the Esthers, a lot of people who were in a for, literally in a foreign land. And as a Christian, I feel that way sometimes. I'm like, man, this whole thing is so weird. But we have these hopes that, that if I'm willing to literally trust God's way to live, even if it's harder, God wants to use me. People who preserve their principles, live according to God's way and remember who they are in Christ can be used by God even in the corrupt kingdoms of this world. 
And here's the best part. God has only ever throughout history used imperfect, broken people. Only ever, only ever. Minus one, and he happened to be God. So all these great heroes of the faith, imperfect, broken people, just like us. And God says, I want to be a part of your story. I will write a better story than you could ever write. And I also want you to be a part of somebody else's God's story. That's the invitation. Perhaps you were put in the position you were at this time in history for such a time as this. The second takeaway is this. It only takes one individual to make a significant difference. One. One's a big number on here. You may not change the world for 8 billion people, but you can make a huge difference in one other person's life. Three, four weeks ago, we put a couple thousand padlocks on a wall. Those are our ones saying, we want the world to know that there's a God that is for them and loves them and is not done in their story. And I'm saying, God, I'm gonna give you permission to use me to be a part of their God's story. It only takes one person. One person at work can change a department, can change the, 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 the dynamics of an organization, the, the field, the, 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 the light, the, the gossip, the energy, the encouragement. One person can change a family. One person who walks away from some generational curses and brings God into their life and says, we're gonna live a different way, can change generation upon generation of how people live. I know tons of stories. In fact, part of my heritage would have been a bunch of angry, alcoholic people but about three or four generations ago, a couple of grandparents got a hold of Jesus. And the last three or four, now five generations look a whole lot different than the five generations before them. Because one woman said yes to Jesus and had some kids who had some kids who had some kids. One, you can be the one. God wants to use you to be the one. Make a difference. And then last, for, for those maybe who are here and you just, you came in like, I came to church needing some hope. That's what this story is all about. The third takeaway is this even if it doesn't seem like it, even when you can't see it, God is still in control. Even though the world may get crazier and America may get crazier and we may get more politicized and more divided and more angst and more whatever, this isn't the end of the story. If you read the book of Revelation, the story ends with Jesus on the throne and anybody who's with him wins. That's how the story ends. We get to be on that side of it. And so even if things get a little bit harder on this side, like there's a better ending coming but God is acting on your behalf. So don't stop hoping, don't stop believing, don't let go, don't give up hope. There is a God who is for you and if you have breath in your lungs, there's more he wants to do in you and there's more he wants to do through you. And so for some of us, I just believe this story is an opportunity, maybe for the first time ever, just to invite that God into our life, to say, God, I wanna give you my life. And if that's you, I'm gonna say a prayer. I'm gonna say a prayer, I'm gonna invite everybody to say it. We're all gonna say it's gonna be for all of us. And you can mean that in your heart. You can say, that's me, I'm inviting God into my life. For some of us, we just need to ask, we're just gonna say, God, we're giving you permission to give us hope again, that the story's not over. You're not done writing my story. You're not done writing my story yet, right? And for some of us, we just need to be reminded again this weekend, God, I wanna be one person who makes a difference. And we're gonna pray for that. So as we close, if you're physically able, would you just stand to your feet? And we're gonna say one prayer that covers all the bases. And we're gonna take Esther at her story and we're going to try to apply it to our life. The book of Esther asks us to trust God's providence and even when we can't see him working and to hope that no matter how bad, God, how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his good world. Repeat the simple prayer if you would after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for creating me for such a time as this. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for the plan that you have for my life. I give my life to you. I want you to write my story and I want you to use me to be light, 
to be salt, to add value, to make the world the way you want it to be. God, I want to be one that makes a difference. Help me to see what you see and to care about what you care about. And finally, God, help me to see hope. Help me to know you're not done yet. The story's not over. There's more you have for me. Thank you for this reminder. I'm not going to quit on you because you're never going to quit on me. In Jesus' name, amen.